0: I want to welcome you to Resurrection Sunday. This is the Sunday of all Sundays, is it not? This is the Sunday when we celebrate that our God is alive, as we've just sung, that he is resurrecting us. Take your Bibles and let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 26 is our reading in God's word this morning. If you have a phone, you can just Google that or search that, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 26. We also have the text on the screen behind me here. You follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Uh, A little laugh there needs to go in, but here it comes. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Yeah, you can clap for that, that's a beautiful passage of scripture, this is God's word, we are thankful, thankful for it. This morning we think about the matter of the resurrection, I have a confession to make of sorts, and it's this, I don't particularly enjoy or like board games. Now if you enjoy board games, have at it, I just happen to think they're appropriately named. Find them to be boring, so they're board games. Now, there's a couple that I like. I like ones that have strategy connected to them. So I like Risk. We got to think a little bit and have a strategy. Try and conquer the world, or Monopoly. Try and buy up the right, you know, pieces of property, things of that sort. Or if you're going to play cards, let's do Spoons because at least there's aggressiveness connected to it. So you get a little, little picture into my psyche. Don't judge me, but um, just. Telling you a little bit about how I think about board games. There is one, though, that I historically have enjoyed. It's a manual dexterity game. It's called Jenga. Take 54 wooden blocks, stack them up onto 18 rows, three at a time, and then you attempt to remove these little blocks and then restack them on top of one another. It's a fascinating game. The only problem, though, is with Jenga, there really aren't, there's not one winner, there's only one loser, right? because the loser is the person who picks the wrong block, not realizing that by moving that block out of its position, it displaces the structure of the entire tower, and before you know it, the gravitational pull has now been adjusted and the entire tower collapses. That one particular block, unknown to everyone playing the game, was sort of the the linchpin that caused the entire tower to collapse. That one block made all the difference in the world. As it relates to the resurrection, I want you to know that the one block in the whole system of Christianity that holds everything together, without which when you pull it out, everything collapses, yeah, that's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, the physical raising of Jesus from the dead is the central reality that holds Christianity together. Without the resurrection, you have no forgiveness. Without the resurrection, you have no future. Without the resurrection, you have no hope. So this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, I want to explore why is the resurrection so incredibly central? What does it mean that the resurrection is this central building block for what it means for Christianity to offer hope. I don't care where you are in your spiritual journey, you may be here a Christian, I wanna remind you why the resurrection is important. You may be here still trying to figure out the claims of Christ. You've come on Easter, really glad that you've come. You need to know the reason this Sunday is so important is because of what I'm about, is because of what I'm about to share with you about how the resurrection is central to hope. Take the resurrection out, there's no hope. Put the resurrection in. There's all kinds of hope. So what I wanna do is explore 1 Corinthians 15 and help us understand both the centrality of resurrection and the hopefulness of resurrection. So let's see what we can find in this text. The first step we need to take is understanding why why the resurrection is so incredibly central. Now, we're, we're dropping into the book of 1 Corinthians, and particularly into chapter 15, so you don't really have any sort of context that can kind of be annoying. It's like that friend who shows up 10 minutes in the movie and they wanna know what the plot line is, right? It's kinda of hard. Let me give you a little background. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians around 50 AD. He wrote it to a church in modern-day Greece This church was talented, they had all kinds of opportunities, resources, they were sort of in the center of culture and economic um, success related to the city of Corinth, but this church had some problems. They were a little too full of themselves at times, had some good things that were happening, but they started to wander in some of their beliefs and in one of the beliefs that they started to give up, or at least consider giving up, was the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Not just people who had died, but also even Jesus himself. So Paul writes to them in order to help strengthen their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Part of the reason that they were struggling was because the belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus was very different than the dominant worldview of the culture. They felt kind of silly at times. Smart people in their society looked at believing in the physical resurrection with sort of a skepticism or scoffing at them, like, you really believe that? You see, in in that time and era, there was a belief connected to the Greco-Roman world that people who died, they just sort of ceased to exist, just sort of weren't there anymore. Or other people believed that souls were disembodied and they went to this, like, spiritualized netherworld or this underworld. So the idea that Jesus of Nazareth not only was raised from the dead, but that he was physically alive, that was... That's like believing in a unicorn today. It used to be childish or the thing of fables. What's more, to believe in the resurrection of individual people seemed to be outrageous. And yet, Jesus was physically alive. John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to the disciples and he, he said to Thomas, who was struggling with his belief, he put out his hands and he said, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus wanted Thomas and the disciples to know that he was physically alive. The disciples, think of this, they could see him, they could talk with him, they could touch him. So understand that the resurrection of Jesus means that he wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a form, he wasn't a figure, he wasn't a ghost. Jesus is alive and he was alive. Just try and get your head around that. The disciples, with the others, they talked with him, they ate breakfast with him, and they watched him ascend into heaven and they heard angels say, he's going to come back. If Jesus were to show up in this room You'd be able to touch him. You'd be able to hug him. You'd be able to see him. So Paul writes to this church in order to strengthen their confidence in the resurrection. And he wants them to know how central it is. So there's there's five areas in which Paul highlights the centrality of the resurrection. Here's number one. The resurrection is central to preaching, to the declaration or the teaching of what God's word says. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That word vain means empty, it means without meaning, it means pointless, without purpose, or even foolish. And the idea is this, if Jesus hasn't come out of the grave, then verbal proclamation of what the Bible said is absolutely empty. But not just proclamation of the Bible, frankly, the entire message of the church is completely unbelievable. Jesus isn't alive, then we shouldn't be here. Not just this Sunday. We shouldn't be in church any Sunday. So the resurrection of Jesus matters for the proclamation of the hope of the message of the Bible. Secondly, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, not only is our preaching in vain, but he says your faith is in vain. Essentially what he says here is that you only understand the power of your Christian faith if Jesus really has been raised from the dead. You see, what you believe is only as good as the substance of what you're believing in. Faith is worthless if you believe in something that isn't true, and so what Paul is saying here is that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then placing your hope in Jesus would be foolish, silly, And yet the apostles believed the resurrection to be true. They saw him, they touched him, they ate breakfast with him, and that's why when people around them, particularly in positions of power, told them to stop talking about him, or when they claimed, those people in power, that he wasn't really raised from the dead, the disciples were like, straight up, we saw him. Like, we saw him. And that's one of the reasons that, if you're here today and you're a little bit of a skeptic, The Bible can handle your skepticism, by the way. The Bible can handle your tough questions. But if you're like, I don't know about this resurrection thing, one of the reasons that you can believe in the resurrection is because the apostles believed it and they died for it. Let me illustrate this with a quote from Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a political operative in the Nixon administration. He was a part of the whole Watergate scandal with the break-in orchestrated by the president. He went to prison. He was um, gloriously converted while in prison, wrote a great book called Born Again. And here's what Chuck Colson says about the believability of the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. That's interesting. How? Here's why. Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. (laughs) And you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That's helpful, isn't it? The Apostle Paul is saying is that your faith is in vain if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. Here's the third thing, the credibility of the church, the credibility of the Bible, the credibility of anybody who ever called themselves a Christian is on the line. Like what he says in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So both the credibility of the message of the apostles, the credibility of the message of the church is on the line as it relates to the resurrection. And Then we find something very personal. The resurrection is important or forgiveness doesn't work. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So what Paul does here is he connects the resurrection to the cross, and essentially what that means is this, that if the resurrection didn't happen, then the cross didn't work. Let me tell you why that's important. If you've ever wondered, like, what's the central message of the Bible? What is the The singular truth that the Bible is trying to communicate, here it is, it is that the Bible tells us that God is holy. And the Bible tells us that our world is broken with sin. It means that humanity, we, us, you, me, we have a fatal flaw baked into the very fabric of our humanity, and here it is. We want to be our own God. We want to do things our own way. We want to define our own morals. We want to be known as better than other people. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. That's built into the very fabric of our humanity. You don't believe me? Just have a child. <laughs> You'll see it, it's just there. No one has to teach them how to say mine or no or that, that will has to be bent the other direction. The default is at a very young age, we want to be our own God, so we express that autonomy, we do things with it, and we do things that we know are wrong, so we feel guilt. If you'd be here kind of describing yourself maybe even as an atheist and you don't even think God exists, the thing you have to wrestle is then why do we feel guilty? C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that guilt implies that there is someone who sets a standard that creates the pushback of that moral guilt. The message of the Bible is that this autonomous pursuit creates a separation between us and God. There's this gulf between us. And yet the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, he he dies on the cross for the purpose of providing atonement for sins because every sin needs a sacrifice and we can't self-atone because everything that we do is marred by our sinfulness. In other words, how would you know if you're making a sacrifice? Because you really meant it or because you want to look good in God's sight? Everything you touch is messed up by that brokenness, and so what we need is another sacrifice that's perfect, made on behalf of us, so that the scales of divine justice can be balanced. In other words, you need someone to pay your bill, and Jesus was the one who does this. The effect is this, that anyone who puts his or her trust in Christ for that person, you look to Jesus, say I believe in him, I know that I'm a sinner, God grants to you forgiveness. He takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to you, he takes your sin and gives it to Jesus. That's why Christians sing, that's why Christians give, that's why Christians are joyful, because we know I have been forgiven and I couldn't earn it. It's a gift, it's all of grace. Such that the Bible says that for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, God opens up the book, the ledger of your sins. All he sees is the blood of Christ. You're forgiven. Not because you were perfect. No, because you know somebody who is. The person is Jesus. So what Paul says, though, is if Christ is not raised from the dead, then everything that I just told you can't work. It doesn't work. Why? Because if he's not been raised from the dead, it means that sin and death are still greater than him. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, it means that he conquered sin and conquered death, providing a pathway and offering for forgiveness. An opportunity for us to begin again. The fifth area that the resurrection is central to is how we think about our future. Verse 18 says this, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what Paul is leaning into here is this, that if life is nothing more than the here and now, if life is nothing more than just sort of how we live every single day and there's nothing else to it, there's no meaning underneath it, there's no purpose. Paul says it's pointless, the resurrection adds meaning because it helps us to know what it is that we are living for and the means by which we are living out our lives. You may be here on Easter and you've had that nagging thought before. Isn't there more to life than how I've been living? Maybe you found yourself chasing satisfaction in some arena. You thought the move to Indianapolis was gonna solve everything. You thought this new job was gonna fulfill you. You thought that relationship, that, that was going to finally fulfill your deepest longings. You thought, as long as I make this particular amount of money, then I'm going to be happy. Or if I can just finally be married or be out of this marriage. And yet, you keep waking up day after day, and there's this nagging thought that I am never going to figure out what really satisfies. The vacations end, the jobs disappoint. People aren't everything you thought they were going to be. Even the best joys in life are not fully able to satisfy And the reason is this, is that you are made for more. You are made for a relationship with your creator and the resurrected Christ provides the pathway to that. So the resurrection of Jesus is incredibly significant. The resurrection of Jesus meant that death was defeated, that sin could be forgiven. Listen, that the devil isn't going to win, that people can be changed from the inside out and that eternal life awaits those who have put their trust in Jesus. So the resurrection of Christ signals that it's possible for someone to begin again. Because after all, think of this, if Jesus conquered death, don't you think he can handle the problems in your marriage? If Jesus conquered sin and the grave, don't you think he can help set you free from the things that are binding you like an addiction? If Jesus has conquered sin and death, don't you think he can enter the space of your loneliness and be a friend that sticks closer than a brother? If Jesus conquered death, don't you think he can help you in the midst of a loss that you're experiencing to know that this thing is not over and this is not going to result in my destruction and in my demise? You see, the hope of the resurrection is that Jesus enters into the difficult places of life and creates a different ending. On Monday of this week, I was part of a really hard funeral, it was the funeral of a little eight-year-old, eight-month-old, rather, baby that had passed away. And you know, really small caskets remind you something's wrong with the world. Solomon said that it's better to go to the house of, better go to the the house of mourning, the house of feasting. And, And the reason is just because you learn more at funerals than you do at parties. In the context of that funeral, when we saw God the way in which he had given the family unusual grace through their difficulty. One of our pastors, Don Bartimus, said these words. He said, folks, stick with Jesus because you'll love the ending. It's good, isn't it? Stick with Jesus. You're going to love the ending. Some of you need to get a tattoo with that somewhere, like, stick with Jesus. You'll love the ending, you know, kind of a thing. Something like that. If you're against that sort of thing, just write it down in your Bible or something. So... (laughs) Stick with Jesus, you'll love the ending. It's so true, is it not? That's what the resurrection tells us. So the resurrection is central. Here's the second thing in this text. The resurrection is hopeful. I love how the text turns in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So after talking about all the negative things, like what happens if you take the resurrection out, Paul now says, let's put the resurrection back in and let's see why it is so glorious. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, then he calls him something, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is really interesting. He calls them first fruits. You need to know a little bit about Old Testament history to know what this means. When a farmer would grow their crops, they would take a certain section of the, of the harvest a percentage, and they would bring that percentage into the temple, and they would use it as their offering. So think of it like a tithe or something like that, and they would call it their first fruits, and it was this thing that they said thank you to God for while recognizing that there was a whole field yet to be harvested that was going to be their own. So it was the first fruits, and when Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits, what he's saying is this, that Jesus is the first one to come out of the grave, and there's a bunch of other ones who are gonna come out of the grave too. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you. It means when he calls him the first fruit, it means that you're in the field waiting for the day of resurrection. And when that day comes, here's the miracle of the new heavens and the new earth. It means that when we stand in that great company of redeemed people, we will physically, in our form, look like Jesus. What he is, will be. We'll look at us, we'll look at him, and we'll be amazed that we have been transformed into his likeness. And what's more, we'll know that the only reason we're there is because of him. We look like him and now act like him and love like him. We are like him only because of him. That's Jesus, and he's alive. And we have hope because of his resurrection. Charles Hodge, a 19th century theologian, put it this way, the resurrection of Christ is a pledge of the resurrection of his people. So God's got a receipt on you, and it's Jesus's living body. Secondly, there's an opportunity, because of the resurrection, for renewal. He says in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. He's talking here of Adam. He clarifies this in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So the idea is that Jesus' resurrection begins the process of reversing the curse, the curse that has affected mankind. When Adam fell into sin, the entire created order fell. And when Christ comes, he comes as the new Adam, the one who will restore what has been broken. So he comes into the world in order to make right what's wrong, to redeem that which has been broken, to renew that which is lost. And it's not complete yet, but we see evidences of it happening. For instance, at our elder Meeting on Monday, we heard the story of one of our men who served as an elder. How he came to faith in Christ—it's a remarkable story because of a marriage conflict. His marriage kind of blew up, and it made him realize his need. And and, and by the way, that's like that's like eighty percent of the battle. Like the the thing that I have to work hardest on as a pastor is not just telling people what the solution is, but helping them know what the problem is. So if you've come to church today and in your mind you're like, "Yeah, my life is a train wreck," you are. 80% of the way there. Like, you're almost there. If you're coming like, yeah, I got no hope in me. Like, you are almost there because the gospel has to work so hard to deconstruct our hope in ourselves and then to show us how to hope in Christ. Just so you know, there's no perfect person in this room. Get into our stories, you'll find all of us came to that conclusion. We're a mess. Just that we met Jesus, that's why we sing. We don't sing because we're awesome, we sing because he is. This elder realized that, he saw the change in his wife's life, she became a Christian, he saw the change in her, so he became a Christian, and once he got his relationship with Christ right, it started to transform every aspect about him, and he's a different man today because of that renewal that comes through Jesus, not just in the future, but the hope of the resurrected Christ is you can find renewal today First fruits, renewal. Third, this text tells us about the coming victory. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Notice, anything that sets itself up against God's rule, Jesus will eventually destroy. And it says, for he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. This predicts and looks forward to a future day when every powerful structure, every evil person, every force of wickedness that works itself against God's plan will be destroyed. We won't wake up on Easter morning and hearing about bombings in Sri Lanka ever again. Because, fourthly, death will ultimately be defeated. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you think about it, death is one of the scariest realities of our humanity. We can try to delay it, but we can't ultimately avoid it. Death comes for all of us eventually. That's one of the reasons why grief is so scary to us, and why funerals are so often so hard. They are a reminder that there's something wrong with the world. But the Bible tells us that Jesus has come to destroy death. So what if, think of this, what if the most frightening foe known to mankind is one day going to be destroyed? Imagine what it would be like to live in a world, in a place where there was no pain, no sadness, and no death, no fear of death ever again. No grabbing your kid's hands when you have to walk across the street. No no fear of what might happen or how this might turn out badly, that your life is absolutely, completely freed of any fear. And the Bible says that day is coming and Jesus bought the right to make that day possible. And that's why the resurrection is so full of hope. Let me, let me personalize this in two ways. First, let me speak to you who are here today and you, you wouldn't call yourselves a Christian you may believe certain things about the Bible, but you're not necessarily a Christ follower, and you've come today, and I'm just so glad you have. This is a really good day. If you're gonna come to church, come on this one. I want you to understand that coming to terms with the brokenness that's in your soul is really, really important. I trust I don't have to like, convince you that you've made mistakes, that you've somehow failed to maybe obey God's law. I mean, you know that, right? The Bible calls this sin, and this this deadly pursuit of our autonomy outside of God's rule is what creates havoc, both externally and internally. But here's the good news. Friend, you can begin again by being born again. The Bible calls you to place your trust and faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. For you to say, God, I'm, I'm done, I'm done with me, I'm done trying to run my own life. And maybe something in your life has just recently helped you to see that, and as a result, this is the reason why you're here today. Like it's not by mistake. Somebody else invited you, but God's got a plan for your life, and you know it. You straight up know it, which is why you're here, and the fact of the matter is you may today be feeling this, this strange like tug, almost like a warm thing in your soul, like this pulling, and they want you to know when that begins to happen, that is not you. That's a work of the Spirit as God begins to open your ears, open your eyes to see things and hear things that you would have never heard or seen. And the question would be this, why not come to Jesus today? Why not cross the line and say, I don't know what it all means, but here's what I know. I I did not believe, and now I believe. I didn't trust in Jesus, now I do. And that friend can begin the process of transforming you from the inside out. If you're a Christian, Everything that I've just told you this morning is something that you already knew was true. The problem is that often we don't incorporate the resurrection into our lives. We don't realize that every Sunday we're celebrating the resurrection. We don't realize that every day we live in the power of the resurrection. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6. What does that mean? It means that the resurrected power of Christ is not only a historical reality with future hopes, it means that the resurrection power of Christ is available right now, today. Because if Jesus was able to conquer sin and death, don't you think he can handle your marriage? If Jesus conquered sin and death, don't you think he can handle your past, your loneliness, your attitude, the challenges, whatever it is that are going on inside your soul? It doesn't matter how far you've gone, how long it's been, or how deep you're in, the resurrection can help you to begin again. Because the resurrection of Jesus is central to true hope. Resurrection is the one thing that holds everything together. So here's what this text says. Stick with the resurrected Christ. You're gonna love the ending. You're gonna love the ending. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we are thankful that your word gives us such helpful words. And We want to believe them. Lord, we pray that many people today who would hear this, would see what we have sung together and would place their trust, their hope in you. Lord, would there be some Even right now, I just simply say to you, Lord Jesus, I know what I've just heard is true. I believe it, and I don't know that I've ever believed it before, but I want you, Jesus, to come, to be my Savior, to be my King. Come right now and take over. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Savior. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to believe and trust in you. And For those who know you as Savior, help us to rely upon that beautiful resurrected grace every single day. Jesus, we're thankful you're alive and want to stick with you because we know we will love the ending And we place our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.